Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that in 1931, the Nobel Prize was awarded to Dr. Otto Warburg for discovering that cancer cells have a different energy metabolism than normal cells in your body, and that tumors feed on sugars. And in more recent years, researchers figured out that cancer cells not only feed off glucose and fructose, they also use fructose to divide and multiply. It's one of the reasons that a ketogenic diet can be effective against cancer, and we've learned now that tumor cells can't use ketones because they just can't use oxygen that way, which is very interesting. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's guest is Patricia Daly. She's a certified nutritionist therapist and an author based in Dublin, Ireland, She's worked with cancer patients around the world using a mix of traditional and complementary methods, is a member of the British Society for Integrative Oncology, and had cancer herself. She hacked her own cancer. She had eye cancer and got rid of it. (laughs) And she did this with the power of ketones and a few other tricks. Patricia, welcome to the show. Hi, Dave. Thanks a million for having me. Uh, It's my pleasure because... You've done something interesting. It's one thing to say, oh, I'm a cancer researcher, right? Like there's, there's lots of people doing research on cancer. Uh, in fact, sometimes I wonder like, why have we not solved this problem yet? Because there's <laughs> so many people working on it, but at least we're all like running in circles and things like that to raise money for awareness of cancer, maybe. <laughs> but who's going to do something about it? And there's nothing like having cancer to motivate you. Uh, to do things. And it's just similar for me, nothing like having obesity and realizing recommendations simply don't work and then doing something about it. So I, I was really intrigued by your story there and I wanted to get a chance with you, a chance to talk about it with you. Tell me about what happened. Like, like how did you become a cancer hacker here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, as you said, I, um, I basically, I, I tried the conventional route and then when, the, when this didn't really have the uh, desired results, that's when I 
I started to hack the cancer. Yeah, exactly. So I was diagnosed with uh, malignant melanoma in the eye at the age of 28. So that's um, wow. exactly eight years ago now. And uh, yeah, initially didn't really didn't much have um, an idea of what I actually was getting myself into. And the treatment was um, very rough. I had a radio, a radioactive plaque stitched to the eye for four days. And initially it worked really well. Uh, the tumor shrank fairly quickly. Uh, but then I had a relapse about 20 months later. I mean, the tumor just within the space of a few months, it just grew so aggressively that I had to have surgery again. And uh, this time I had uh, then proton beam therapy, another form of radiotherapy, but much more aggressive. Uh, and that was in 2010. And uh, so far, so good. I mean, obviously, I had a lot of side effects. It is uh, full on treatment and the tumor had moved so close to the optic nerve that they had to radiate the optic nerve. Wow. And they said, OK, you know, chances are, I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed. That's what they told me. Expect to lose your vision within sort of 12 to 18 months. And then Fast forward to 18 months later, I had nearly lost my vision, but not only that, there was a lot going on in the eye. I mean, I had edema, I had excessive angiogenesis, so the growth of um, lots of blood vessels. And uh, I had cataracts, I had the onset of glaucoma, so the pressure in the eye was rising. And my consultant said, okay, we need to do something. Um, there are two options. We can try Avastin injections. Uh, so Avastin is a, an angiogenesis inhibitor. Uh, straight into the eye or then if that's not working out down the line you have to look into getting the eye removed wow. and it's when you're very young I had I had two very young kids at the time my son was eight months and my little girl was two and a half and being faced with a decision like that on top of obviously all the chaos that uh, young children bring uh, it wasn't easy but in a way probably it saved me as well um, that I really started to research. I mean, I had started looking into the ketogenic diet in 2011 already, uh, just to suss out my options. And my consultant uh, kept saying, just don't do anything um, radical. And, uh, <laughs> Have some sugar, don't do anything radical. Okay. <laughs> so I had a very, I mean, to, to make that very clear, I had a, a really clean um was you know what we sort of in mainstream medicine look at a very good diet i mean uh, i started studi studying nutritional therapy a month after finishing radiotherapy in 2008 um so you know i had some idea but obviously uh the whole notion of ketogenics that's just not taught in colleges it's starting to be taught but at the time forget about that uh, so i did you know the usual lots of juicing whole grains loads of vegetables um Meat, I pretty much ditched uh, a little bit of oily fish, just, you know, the, the usual. Uh, so it was a very, I didn't have any processed foods. I didn't have any uh, treats as such, you know, that would, you know, cake and biscuits and stuff. So it was really pretty decent diet. But then in 2011, I started researching and being from Switzerland, I um, turned to a lot of the German research, which was um, very much at the forefront at the time. So Johannes Koy, Ulrike Kemmerer from uh, Würzburg and Rainer Clement, he came on, on the plan as well. So at the time, Tom Seafried and Dominic D'Agostino, they weren't as present online. So it was mainly the German research. And then I just gave it a go. Uh, my consultant said as well, OK, off you go, try your radical thing. <laughs> and we keep we keep an eye on the eye, literally. And I had to go in for monitoring. Um, and that's the, I think it's fascinating with, with eye tumors and people just look at me, wow, you're a weirdo. But I find it's, it's fascinating because you can actually watch the tumor. I think it's the only type of cancer, one of the only ones where you can actually look into and see, wow, what's going on? And um, literally it was probably five, four or five weeks after I started, I went back in and my consultant sat down. He looked into the eye and he sort of said, wow, it looks like the cam after a big storm. What, what are you doing? Um, and it, it really, he said, it, it, it's almost similar effects to Avastin, you know, really uh, reducing inflammation and angiogenesis and all of that. And that was pretty much, um, that was it. I mean, I didn't do it perfectly at the beginning. I was, you know, struggling because there weren't, there were hardly any recipes. The ones I had were very much dairy, 
based, not based, and uh, it wasn't anything like the ketogenic diet that I follow now. Um, but you know, it's uh, I started with about sixty grams of net carbs a day, so I just basically split um, twenty grams with each main meal, and uh, that was pretty much what I was doing. But it still worked. So even though it wasn't a radical ketogenic diet, which I find very interesting in hindsight now with what I know. And uh, yeah, and I had an extra ocular tumor as well that was forgotten about and that completely, it didn't respond at all to radiotherapy. It just stayed the same size. And I had a CT scan uh, last year because it was forgotten to be monitored and it's completely gone. Um, It just disappeared yeah, and that was outside the eye. So I don't know if it's classified as an eye tumor or a brain tumor. Not sure. <laughs> so rare. Yeah. I About five years ago, I had breakfast with a guy who swore me to secrecy, but he's CEO of a, of a very sizable company. And he'd been diagnosed with inoperable pancreatic cancer. Uh, this is what killed Steve Jobs. And this guy's definitely a biohacker because the day of the diagnosis, he's like, oh, I'm going in ketosis, like all the way in ketosis. And it took him about six months to shrink his tumor until it became operable. Uh, he never told anyone. He never told his family. He never did. He, he basically went into the hospital <laughs> after it was operable, stayed in ketosis the entire time, had it operated on, and ketosis speeds recovery, right? So he, he was basically back up on his feet in a few days and kept doing things and completely eliminated his cancer. It's one of those things where he did a bunch of other stuff as well. But you look at stories like that, that's supposed to be impossible. Like for you to just get rid of this cancer outside your eye that might have been brain cancer that people forgot to pay attention to. You're like, oh, I know. <laughs> it just kind of went away. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. Like. I, I hope listeners listening to this go just realize how profound ketosis could be for cancer. Um, why is it so successful in cancer? Yeah, I mean, the reason why the ketogenic diet was formulated, we have to go back to the sort of 1920s when they realized um, that epileptic patients who were sick and had to fast, that they stopped having seizures. So they realized, oh, fasting could be really good uh, for epileptic patients. It does something to their brain. And that's how they actually came up with the ketogenic diet. It's a diet that mimics fasting, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess, you know, there's, there's so much research now coming out on, on the whole fasting as well, how yeah. uh, much benefit in terms of inf- inflammation, oxidative stress, and also, you know, lots of other aspects in terms of autophagy. So getting rid of rubbish <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in, in layman's terms. And uh, that's basically probably one of the powers of the ketogenic diet. And I think it's it's reductionist to say, oh, you know, it's just about blood sugars. And once blood yeah. sugars are, <laughs> are low, then the cancer cells can't be fed anymore. And end of the story. Yeah. And they say, that's too simple. And I say, yeah, of course, it's too simple. And it's it's a lot more. The ketogenic diet has affected so many different pathways. And I heard Dominic D'Agostino recently talk in a podcast that there's probably there's I think there's around twenty that we know of, but there's at least as many that we probably don't know of yet. Twenty pathways for ketones to affect cancer, or just in general? Yeah, mainly also in in terms of uh, in terms of cancer as well. That there are so many pathways that are important for cancer, like insulin, um, insulin-like growth factor, and AMPK. Then how that's affected as well. You know, there's, the list goes on and on. Antigenesis, as was very well demonstrated in, in my um, example as well. We also know that the ketogenic diet has an effect on gene expression. So there's quite a lot of research going on there because there's a, that's obviously linked to cancer. So there's a lot we still need to discover and we need, we need more research, definitely. Well, well there's... There's a convenient thing about ketosis, and for listeners who have never been in ketosis, there's an easy way to experience a little bit of it. Uh, <laughs> when you when you do bulletproof coffee uh, made with the right ingredients, uh, brain octane is the largest source of exogenous ketones uh, probably in, that's sold right now because so many people put it in their coffee. So if you don't have a bowl of cornflakes with it, uh, you can raise your ketones enough to feel the effects on your metabolism. 
just by having a cup of Bulletproof coffee with Brain Octane in it. In fact, I'm, if you're watching on YouTube, I'm drinking my morning one right now. It's got collagen, which is uh, free of methionine, uh, or almost free of methionine, which is one of the amino acids associated with, uh, with extra cancer. I'm not saying methionine causes cancer. I'm saying if you get too much of it, it contributes to inflammation that contributes to cancer because inflammation lowers your mitochondrial function. But uh, the difference in the quality of my life from having some ketones present is enough that I probably don't have cancer right now. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, I can tell you, I like how I feel when I do that. And part of what I'm doing with Bulletproof is just showing people, look, you're a better person when you have more energy in your cells. And the fact that you're probably not going to get cancer when you have more energy in your cells is a side effect. And if you have cancer, and, and you've heard this podcast, or someone you know does, there's no excuse for not going into ketosis. I mean, you can talk to your doctors and decide if, if there's some strange corner case, but I would challenge a doctor to find a reason why you shouldn't try ketosis if you have cancer that's threatening your life. Like, like ketosis is not dangerous compared to dying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole debate. I mean, you, you probably saw, or I, I hope you got a chance to look at the, the book that we just published, The Ketogenic Kitchen, that mm-hmm. I published with uh, Dominic Kemp. And the backlash we got is quite amazing. <laughs> you know, ketogenic, U- it's so in Ireland, mainly. In the, oh, in Ireland and UK? The, yeah. There's a lot of very weird, like, I'm just going to be a little bit rude here. There's a lot of very fat politicians and the, the, the British, uh, I think they call them the British Diabetic, no, I'm sorry, Dietetic Association, that give you recommendations to make you diabetic. And they just come out there anytime someone says high fat, they always like stand up and kind of waddle around about it. And I'm done with those people. Like, I hope they're listening and like, like everyone listening knows what you guys are doing. Like, you cannot hide, okay? You, and we're not going to be polite about it, even though that's like the UK thing to do. No, sorry. <laughs> Don't tell people yeah. to eat sugar. It's bad for them, okay? <laughs> All right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, but, you know, we- <laughs> It's it is it's it's very um, obviously it's a very new concept especially here I think yeah. you guys in in the states you probably and especially also in uh, you know in Germany Switzerland uh, you know you go to clinics they're sort of well we've been doing that for a long time and it's yeah. just you know it's not even talked about and obviously in integrated clinics not sort of in the mainstream but um, yeah it's it's just it is intriguing how you know ketogenic diet is dangerous and how they i think there's still this massive mix up with ketoacidosis which i find really sad you know that we haven't moved on and that's one of the i think that's one of the beauty beautiful things about the ketogenic diet we have a safety record from epilepsy and in epilepsy, we have the randomized c- controlled trials, but I know for a fact that in epilepsy, we were actually, you know, about 10 years ago, we were at the exact same stage um, than we are with cancer now. You know, everybody said, you're crazy doing this with epileptic patients. There is no, it's not safe. There is no, not enough evidence. And um, I think we just have a bit of, you know, catch up to do in terms of the cl- clinical trials, but it is happening and it's no point just sticking your head in the sand and ignoring the evidence that we have at the moment. It, it's one of those things where doing chemotherapy versus trying ketosis, maybe even ketosis and chemotherapy together. Exactly. They're willing to do some, some stuff that is incredibly, shockingly toxic for a 5% improvement in outcome. And, and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and the difference is really not that big. And it, it creates enormous suffering. You don't really suffer very much by trying ketosis. Like you, you might have sugar cravings for a couple of days as you get into ketosis and then you don't care about food. It's awesome, right? Like, yeah. Like the downside is so small. But I think we, we have to sort of take it from an approach, okay, let's let's try and combine ketosis with con- conventional treatments yeah. Yeah. because that's the only way to really get it into mainstream. And uh, Adrienne Check in Arizona, she's doing absolutely amazing work uh, with mm-hmm. her team showing how uh, ketosis or even just giving it can be exogenous ketone bodies. I mean, we don't know, uh, but that's what they have been doing in preclinical trials. Uh, and what effects does that have on radiotherapy and chemotherapy? And the results are astonishing. And Colin Champ, he, he does a lot of research as well. Rainer Clement, he even just, you know, even just having, like you said, with the bulletproof coffee or a shake that raises your glucose in the morning before you go into radiotherapy, that can make a difference that people don't have to put their uh, put everything, you know, just um, in terms of diet. They have to absolutely radically change everything, which some, sometimes is not realistic with so, somebody who has to start uh, treatments. It can be just too much to 
face treatment to completely overhaul your diet to have things in your fridge that you've never ever even heard about um, or seen before so it can be a lot so I think we have to really take steps and take measures now to um, start integrating it into into the mainstream and uh, in my view that's the way to go it, it is, and, and you're a definitely a voice for pushing that. And we know a lot about cancer treatment. So I, I could say if I had cancer right now, I'd be cranking out my ketones. I'd probably be minimizing my carbs more than I am now. And uh, I would be talking with cancer specialists <laughs> about what's most likely to work. I'd also be doing aggressive antifungal therapy because there's great evidence for that. Uh, but uh, I, I, oh, and hyperbarics and things like that. I, I would. Yeah. The last thing I would do is just go on a special diet and hope my cancer goes away. <laughs> like that that's the ostrich thing for cancer there. Uh, you, you look at all of the things that are likely to make you get better and then you probably can. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole cocktail of, of different things. As you, yeah. as you mentioned, hyperbaric oxygen has been shown to enhance the effects of uh, ketosis. And there's so many other things that I've just learned bit by bit and that I'm, I, I mean, I keep changing things and tweaking and implementing, doing more testing and, okay, how can I actually uh, make this really sustainable especially and and really optimize? And I've just recently started to exercise a lot more again. I used to be um, a semi-professional triathlete and trained um, a lot, um, endurance training, the usual stuff, and then carb loading till the cows came home. <laughs> and uh, which sometimes I wonder, hmm, okay, was that a good thing to do? But anyway, that's the past. And uh, I'm just trying as well. I haven't been exercising intensely ever since I was diagnosed. So I'm only just recently now, since um, end of last year, I've started to see, okay, um, what effects does that have on, on ketosis? And how do I have to adapt and uh and it's it's really almost like starting from scratch again which is exciting yeah are you gonna stay in ketosis uh, forever i do really well on it so um and i keep monitoring i have to go for regular ultrasounds of the whole abdomen as well because one thing with um uh, malignant melanoma in the eye is that it likes to spread to the liver that's sort of the the first um organ that it would go for and to some extent also um, spine or bones uh, so I, I do regular ultrasounds as well and uh, just to make sure everything is is fine and you know some some people say well kidney stones can be an issue uh, or you know in, in terms of digestive function and there's absolutely I mean it's really so clean there I mean my <laughs> the, uh, the the girl who does the ultrasound um, she's always wow it's just really um, all very very clean your liver and kidneys and everything so absolutely not an issue so as long as I'm not running into trouble and my markers are all great I mean I do I'm doing my blots regularly um, and uh, check on other things so there's no reason why I wouldn't be yeah, no this is a fantastic opportunity to ask you some more uh, personal questions if, if you're up for it yeah I, I've been talking about ketosis for a long time and, and there's hundreds of thousands of people who, who've tried the Bulletproof diet and it's a cyclical ketogenic diet where I say, look, every week or two, come out for a day. And one of the populations that seems to benefit the most is women because some women, in fact, I would say more than half of women from a non-scientific sample size, but just you know, observationally, uh, tend to get adrenal dysfunction or hormonal irregularities if they stay in ketosis all the time. But there are others who just, like, I've been in ketosis for 10 years and I love my life. And I I don't know what the difference between them is. It's probably genetic. I I don't know what else it could be. But have you had any problems with hormone levels or adrenal dysfunction when you've been in ketosis for a long time? I mean, it's it's very interesting. It's an interesting question (laughs) because I think my, my hormones, due to my sports, have always been... Let's let's put it that way. I've been lagging behind. So I was I think I was 18 when I had my my first period. So totally a lot of things going wrong. And uh, and I was also thinking, you know, when I first researched it, oh, is that going to work for me? Because I obviously have this history of hormonal imbalances, uh, clearly. Um, And it's it's really interesting how my cycle is just perfect. I mean, I can literally almost I can almost set my watch. Yeah. 
and uh, and I I had never experienced that before on a on a carb based diet. Was PCOS part of uh, part of your issue? I don't think so. Okay. No, Got it. Uh, which would be yeah. I mean, there's there's some good studies into preclinical studies into um, PCOS and keto. Yeah, but I mm-hmm. I don't think. But estrogen dominance, I could almost swear that okay. that was an issue. Yeah. Got it. it- it's interesting when we look at ketosis and, and cancer and then hormones because hormones have an effect on cancer and ketosis has an effect on hormones. And, and this is why like hacking the human body, it's a complex system. And so much of research is like, well, I'm going to look at adrenals. It's like, well, <laughs> they're controlled by the brain. The brain's controlled by yeah. mitochondria. And you just kind of look at this where it, you look at it using 10 different modalities for cancer all at the same time. And the researchers and the, the experts are like, well, this is my modality and this is the only system I work on. Like, yeah, but yeah. I wanted all of those effects at once because it's a complex system. Do you ever, do you ever wonder about that? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I wonder how in, in oncology we're so focused on, on the tumor. What is the tumor doing and uh, how, what, how is the tumor affected by this or that? And I think that's, you know, part of the problem of our medical system at the moment. It's this compartmentalizing um, and, and just looking at one system alone and not being aware of the knock-on effects it has on the entire body. And that's why I, I love functional medicine, uh, which really connects it all and uh, joins the dots, basically. And uh, for me, it's always been clear, the more, the more I learned about cancer, and I, I studied it very intensely and read a lot of things about it, it's, it's a very... There's no one reason. So why should there be one treatment and yeah. one thing that works? So it's so multifaceted that we have to really attack it from so many different angles. And I'm talking especially also about emotions and, uh, you know, sort of pre-pre stuff like energy. I, I, I'm a strong believer in, in stuff like that, but also looking at, you know, when we talk about hormones, when I get emails from my clients at three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> okay, what are you doing at three o'clock in the morning on your computer? You should be sleeping. And there's yeah. some really simple things that people just don't know, or they, they're not aware of them, and they can make a huge difference. And it's just piecing all this together. And I think as a, a, as a nutritional therapist or any practitioner, you really have to be aware of this and, okay, where do we start? Of course, that's that's always the big question. But as you say, you know, everything then has has a lot of implications. And I always had to laugh when uh, my oncologist was in in the UK. He's in San Francisco now. And when I went for checkups, he usually came in and asked, "So how's the eye?" And I was sort of, "I am fine, thanks." It's just this. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's a great line. <laughs> asking, yeah, um, the accessory of the the tumor is fine. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to tell me now what the tumor is doing and how the eye is doing but it's so funny I just get completely focused on the body part where the tumor is and um, we know that the environment is, is equally important the environment of the tumor uh, that, that leads in two very different directions for, for the next question I want to ask you I've got to make sure I remember both of these questions uh, one of them let's talk about the environment I am particularly concerned about blue light exposure and cancer and macular degeneration uh, in, mm. in people. I, I manufacture filters that I have on my phones that that take out some of the blue light, the stuff that most suppresses melatonin. And we know melatonin is anti-cancer. So if you're staring at a bright white iPhone before you go to bed, or Android, it doesn't really matter, uh, then you're suppressing melatonin. And melatonin, in part, helps to, helps to not get cancer. So like, yeah. you shouldn't be staring at bright white lights, and you sh- really should be wearing like dark glasses and dimming your phone and, and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> How important do you think light is on the skin and in the eyes uh, when it comes to cancer and cancer metabolism? I think it's hugely important, yeah, uh, not just for eye cancer, but obviously in particularly, uh, particularly for eye cancer. And uh, yeah, you, you mentioned uh, melatonin, which is yeah one of the, the major antioxidants as well and uh, hugely anti-cancer. So I know a lot of uh, cancer patients who actually supplement melatonin. And uh, yeah, I think it goes a lot further. I think there's so many effects of light and uh, especially light exposure I think it's it's both extremes, getting the light exposure in the morning, first mm-hmm. thing in the morning. And obviously here in Ireland, it's a little bit trickier sometimes. 
<laughs> uh, but it's still bright, obviously, it's the brightness and trying to turn uh, towards the sun. And uh, just having having that in the morning, it's almost like, okay, uh, we're, we're awake now. And then obviously in the evening, yeah, just reducing that blue light. And I mean, it's interesting that the, the World Health Organization, they classify shift work or irregular sleep patterns as a probable carcinogen. And I think that says it all. Um, you know, if somebody, I was at a, recently at a cancer talk and um, uh, it was organized by the Irish Cancer Society and somebody asked about, so how important is sleep? And, you know, the person doing the talk said, oh, well, we're not quite sure. It could have some impact. And I said, oh, Good God. Oh, well, the WHO is super conservative. And, we, you know, we need more. Said, we need more evidence. <laughs> yeah, we need more evidence. We need more randomized controlled trials to actually show how, you know, the effect of blue light uh, can, uh, you know, really affect us in terms of cancer, especially. So, yeah, I, I'm a strong believer in it. And also, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Jack, Jack Cruz. So uh, he's doing yeah. a lot of research into light and he's actually convinced Isn't it mostly nick lane it seems like like whenever i read nick lane's work nick is the one who's originating a lot of the could be uh, yeah 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 i'm, I'm not i'm not 100 percent sure it's just i'm, yeah. I'm listening N- to some of his and it's it's interesting you know yeah. how it nick nick was the originator of a lot of this stuff because it uh, he wrote a big paper in 2013 around eyes specifically and light and mitochondria that that kicked that kicked a lot of that off. So I'm a huge fan of just going to the source on that stuff. Mm, yeah, yeah. So I've only very recently actually started to really look into more into it, especially yeah, when it comes to receptors in the eye and all of that, and and how it affects us. So um, it's it's an area with huge potential when it comes to ketosis, especially as well. How to optimize ketosis. For you, uh, after this, uh, I'll send you Nick's paper because it's specifically about mitochondria in the eye and around how light changes mitochondria. So he's he's one of the the, the top thinkers. Uh, uh, Nick Lane and Ling are the two who I go to uh, because there's there's so much going on uh, with uh, the color of light. Uh, I have uh, red lights I have for years in the house at night instead of amber or instead of uh, these other things and wear unusual colored lenses and, and just do all this because like the evidence is out there around sleep quality, around circadian signaling, and specifically around what happens with cellular production, uh, with cellular energy production in the eyes uh, and just in the body. But I, I'm profoundly concerned about macular degeneration, much less cancer, uh, because of the changes we've had with LED lighting. And it's mm. one of those things... When I hear uh, like an alternative cancer researcher say, "Oh, it, it's it's about say uh, it's about your food," it is about your food. It, it's absolutely about your food. And if you eat junk food, your chances of getting cancer go up. But if you eat junk food or you get rid of your junk food and you're still living with junk light, the odds of getting cancer are really, really profound. So I, I look at junk light as as a problem. One that I I've like I manufacture stuff to help reduce the impact on myself, uh, but. I, I simply don't believe that that light is more important than food. What is most important is food, and light it helps to modulate what your body does with it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Do you see cancer researchers in the next 20 years telling people, well, okay, you've got to change your diet to be in ketosis? Uh, do you think that's going to happen in, in your life? Um, 20 years. I'd say your life is probably longer than 20 years, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I shouldn't say your life in 20 years. Um, yeah. I, I sincerely hope so. And I think we're going in the right direction because yeah. there are so many really brilliant people working at it and, uh, motivated, passionate people working on it. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think the preclinical data has become too compelling to simply ignore it. And, I mean, whether it's going to be uh, applicable for all types of cancer, mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing we have to really study very hard, which types of cancer respond best to the ketogenic diet. You know, if we could find something, you know, and I know in, in some, I was at a conference in Fulda in Germany um, last November, and they're starting to do metabolic typing of tumors. And I think that's where it's going, you know, okay, is that tumor mainly predominantly glutamine dependent or glucose dependent or a mix of the two or none 
you know, um, there are probably tumors that, you know, don't respond to the ketogenic diet. We just simply don't know enough about it yet. And we have to study it. But if somebody says, oh, well, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying the ketogenic diet. I have cancer because it's, it's not safe. Then that's not an argument. The safety argument is, is simply not valid. So that's why I, I think, you know, any practice or, or any patient who, who has the support and who has uh, the energy and the motivation to do it, I strongly encourage them to study and look into it. Definitely. Yeah. Having, having cancer is not safe. <laughs> we, we just, <laughs> No, it's not very pleasant. It's not yeah. my list of uh, good life experiences. That, that, that's a great tweet. Having cancer is not safe. But, but it, it's what it comes down to when they say ketosis might not be safe when you have cancer. You're like, yep. But it, prob- it probably is, right? Because living isn't safe when you have cancer either. Uh, like like you, you've got you've to solve the problem. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, so that that was one question about light and, and the environment of cancer, where, where it's a question of food and temperature and light and air pressure and oxygen and, and all the things that you can change as a biohacker uh, if, if you want to. You can change light, change the, the pressure, uh, sit in an ice bath, uh, get in a hyperthermia chamber. Uh, and And I find almost no focus on those things in mainstream cancer research, even though it seems like like they should be. But the other thing you mentioned, though, is you mentioned you know, energy and emotions and things like that. Uh, and I'm, I'm all over that. One of the biggest bulletproof recommendations I have is, is really expensive. It, it's that every night before you go to bed, write down three things you're grateful for. Because right? like, <laughs> gratitude, cha- it changes your sympathetic nervous system, which changes your metabolic state. It actually does. Yeah. Do you meditate? Do you have a, a practice of some sort around managing your emotions? And do you think it has any impact on cancer? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting question because I actually started chanting when I was diagnosed uh, because I simply, I didn't just want to sit at home and twiddle my thumbs. I couldn't work, obviously, for a long time because I literally couldn't look into the computer without having some major reaction, meaning I had to throw up. So it took a while wow. for the brain to resettle, yeah, and to get used to looking into screens, reading was out for a long, long time. So I was sort of, okay, what am I going to do? Chanting. And I was always drawn to uh, Buddhism. And funny enough, a lot of my friends here in Dublin, they were actually practicing. So that's what I started. And uh, it's it was... I did quite a bit at the the beginning, morning and uh, evening routine. And now it's more sort of moved towards, I do emotional freedom technique and I do more sort of walking meditation. So in the morning after dropping the kids, I walk uh, home through a nice little forest and that's where I do sort of the grounding and uh, and just, just being basically and breathing. So it's for me sort of, I can't really have sort of a, a really strong practice it's really in terms of time management as well with two small kids and um, yeah. all of that so incorporating it into my day and also breathing techniques I use a lot and just basically just coming back from time to time to okay where am I um, and just uh, stop being all over the place and being totally immersed um, in work and just to drag myself out of that and especially running really helps and and exercise helps me big time so that these are sort of my uh my main uh techniques that i try to really incorporate and emotional freedom technique i do as well for, for listeners emotional freedom technique is is also known as tapping you could check out like the tapping solution and it, it's a part of tapping uh and i i've seen profound changes in people without cancer from from EFT or from tapping and also from EMDR, which it sometimes uses tapping but doesn't. These are ways of addressing those core emotional traumas that affect your metabolism, like for lack of a better word. Uh, it, it's it's awesome that you've you've gone down all of those paths. And you, you mentioned grounding. So I, I started talking about that as a as a treatment for jet lag. Like in twenty ten I started blogging about it and people thought I was nuts. Uh, now it's a little bit more accepted. A lot of people have, have kind of glommed on to that idea. Uh, way back in the day, though, it was uh, it was considered pretty weird. But I, I would fly from San Francisco to Cambridge, England, every month. I would spend a week there, which is just horrible jet lag, like like some of the worst you can do, uh, flying east like that. And I I was doing all these experiments, like okay, 
if I get there, do I, I fast on the airplane or not? Do I exercise in the morning to raise my body temperature? And, and one time I exercised in the morning. The one time it was actually sunny in the UK. Uh, I get there and, <laughs> and, and there's, there's a park, right? So I, I probably got some sun exposure, but I probably had sunglasses on, so it didn't count. Uh, but I did yoga in the park and I, I was earthing. And I, I just remembered this was in 2008 or so before earthing had really come out. And I, I remembered, okay, exercise works, but it wasn't ever exercise. It was the earthing, the grounding that worked. And that was why I started, I wrote about that early on. And, and last time I was in Germany, I was, you know, there outside the hotel with my, you know, my feet on the, the grass. It's, you know, 40 degrees outside Fahrenheit and just kind of cold. But you do it because it works, right? And, and you mentioned that you do that when you go for walks. So you take off your shoes and go for a walk somewhere and, and meditate all at the same time. Yeah, I guess, um, I actually grew up sort of not wearing shoes that much. And my my mom is still, she's even in the deepest winter, she's usually barefoot. And uh, Is, is that a Swiss thing? I don't know if it is. I don't think so, actually. It doesn't sound Swiss. Family, a family thing, yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm actually, I've sort of probably just taken, taken this habit as well. And I like to be barefoot um, for whatever reason. It must make me feel better. Otherwise, I guess I wouldn't do it sort of subconsciously. So, yeah, and also just, just walking in, in the garden. And, uh, yeah, it's, I think it just helps even just connecting. I mean, whatever you call it, if it's earthing or grounding, uh, I think it definitely, um, it, it is a great thing. But some people, they probably would feel a bit, weird uh, taking off this. I mean I'm on my own there in the morning there's hardly anybody coming that way so it's it is it is okay but uh, I think it's just this connection with nature that I really crave and it's um it's always been there but I think with cancer it's it's become even more pronounced and uh, obviously growing up in uh, in Switzerland and with you know pretty much a view to the mountains from the classroom um, that uh, I think is just an innate thing as well that I have. Yeah. And that really helps. It, it's hard to quantify that because it's you know, double blind trials for nature exposure. They're all very forced and, and weird, uh, mm. but any, anyone who, who tries it for a while, you realize nature is a, is a pretty potent drug in and of itself. Right. Yeah. Good, good thing they can't write prescriptions to keep you from getting it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And I have I had to move a bit from the mountains to the sea now. So whenever mm-hmm. I get a chance, I go swimming in the freezing Irish Sea. <laughs> and initially, it was um, it was really I found it really hard to even just get in the water. And now um, I'm I'm pretty used to it, and I get in very quickly. And I probably I managed to stay up to sort of twenty. 20, 30 minutes sometimes. And okay. uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so life enhancing. It's absolutely fabulous. It, 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 there's lots of good reasons to do that. I, I'm not far from a cold ocean, but it, it's just long enough that it takes too long to get there and back when I have kids. I have cryotherapy though. So I have the liquid nitrogen that cools the air. So, right. Yeah. Yeah. And no, it's I funny. I, I, I used to weigh 300 pounds, you know, 50% more than I do. I don't know how many stone that is, but it was a lot of stones. <laughs> and I, uh, 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 and, and I, I had toxic mold exposure, which inhibits mitochondrial function way more than light or bad food. Actually, like it's, it's a, a direct mitochondrial poison and mm. chronic Lyme disease and, and all these things. And I don't have those anymore. Occasionally I, I breathe some mold or something, but like it reverses very quickly. So I just do all this stuff because I'm planning to live to 180. Like, like when you realize how much control you have of your metabolism, I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. But when we talk about this, like, like you're someone who's dealt with cancer and is looking at, at living a long time now that, now that you've managed it and you're making changes to your environment in order to, uh, in order to have more control in order to make your body and your metabolism do what you want. And what we do doesn't sound too dissimilar. I am a thousand percent convinced that, that controlling your mitochondrial function is one of the ways that you can stave off aging and you can feel really good the whole time you stave off aging. So like that's yeah. why I do it because I, I like my life this way. And and I think that's why it's so important that we start in cancer research, we start addressing <laughs> this question, is cancer really a genetic disease, which I actually really don't believe it, it solely is, and that or whether it's a mitochondrial, a metabolic disease. And the work of uh, Thomas Seafried, um, is based in Boston is absolutely brilliant. And he, he's showing as well that 
the major hallmarks of cancer. You know, there's a direct link to the mitochondria as well. And it's just, it really saddens me and it's very frustrating that not more money is, is being put into researching all this when it comes to cancer. And that really every single cent almost is invested into finding more genetic mutations that we can possibly target with drugs. And, yeah. you know, when we see the potential that if we just shift that mindset and I mean, it's a chicken and egg situation, you know, what was first? Was it the, the DNA mutation or was it mitochondrial damage? But uh, Tom's, uh, the, the nuclear transfer uh, experiments, I'm sure, are you, are you familiar with them? Mm -hmm. Um, I think they're absolutely mind-blowing. When I first saw this, I was sort of, holy Moses. I mean, this is just... Some of our listeners probably aren't. Uh, to walk them through for listeners. Yeah, so basically they did experiments where they had, um, they had healthy cells and when they replicate, you have two healthy cells, so nothing new. And then you have a cancer cell, that is the nucleus is cancerous and also the cytoplasm, so the area around the nucleus where the mitochondria are, is cancerous too. So that replicates and then you have a cancerous cell, so not much surprise there. So what happens though if we transfer a cancerous uh, nucleus, so with DNA mutations, into a healthy cytoplasm and um, that's really interesting because then it, the cell replicates then and uh, and basically then the the DNA um, or, or the cell is still okay it's functional uh, or it or it gets um, it's it's being um, basically um, apoptosis happens so but it's still a functioning cell and the tissue is still working as well if there's if the mitochondria are healthy. But what happens if the mitochondria are cancerous and there's a, a healthy nucleus with no DNA mutations, when that cell replicates, then basically the, the whole cell then becomes cancerous very quickly. I actually, we have it in, in our book as well. It's, it's very nicely demonstrated there, also with colors and everything. It sounds a bit abstract when I um, explain it, but that's sort of really shows, uh, it demonstrates that, okay, mitochondria, they possibly protect um, uh, the cell from DNA damage. And when the mitochondria, when something goes wrong with the mitochondria, then that's when we have a real problem, when the cell replicates. And that's why um, it's frustrating that this is not sort of researched um, a lot more by mainstream cancer researchers. There's, there's so much going on. Uh, one of my areas of of expertise is around uh, mycotoxins uh, as well as just like fungal infections and water damage to our environment. One of the things that we now know mitochondria does, and this is going back to, to Nick Lane's work, mitochondria use uh, photons for signaling between each other, like, like very brief bursts of light, like biophotons. And when you are exposed to microtoxins that inhibit respiration, okay, that can be cancerous. But if you have a fungal infection itself, it affects light signaling between the cells. So I'm a, I'm a hacker by training, literally a computer hacker. And one of the things you do if you really want to hack a system is you mess up signaling between things. And yeah. we, about 100 years ago, we decided that we're mostly chemical beings. <laughs> Uh, and this was kind of a big split in medicine where half the people at the time thought we were electrical and half thought we were chemical and we're both and we're magnetic and we're light-based and all sorts of other things. But, and it's all simultaneous, but it was that, that division where we've focused, especially cancer researchers, chemical, 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 and now genetic, but they're forgetting about the signaling side. And as a hacker, it's, it's like, well, that's how you disrupt a network is you just get in there and you kind of gum up the way things talk to each other and pretty soon the whole thing falls down. And it seems like a pretty good descriptor of what's going on in cancer. So I, I look for things in the environment like light or like fungal toxins you breathe that break the mitochondria and say, what did that do to the whole system? Well, it kind of breaks it. Mm, mm. I mean, there's, um, there's a care oncology clinic uh, in London, actually, and they're looking quite a bit into antifungals as well. They're basically repurposing um, old drugs. So they're using yeah. a mix of metformin and then also antifungals and very low dose antibiotics in case there's anything else on and low dose statins as well, very surprisingly. Um, which that is, is very surprising. Yeah, which is very interesting um, that they're basically old drugs that aren't really, I think they're 
they can, they could potentially be patented again, but they've run out of patent. Yeah. And they're, they're designing whole cocktails and then uh, basically just tailoring them to the individual. And uh, it also means that some people, they, uh, it actually makes it a lot easier to follow a ketogenic diet, that they can have a little bit more carbs, obviously because they're on metformin as well. Mm-hmm. But it seems to, for some people, it, it, it seems to just work incredibly well. And it's interesting that you mentioned the antifungals because um, it is definitely a, a big thing as well. I mean, it's it's not just, there was, I um, can't remember the doctor's name who uh, sort of came up with the theory is cancer fungus and, uh, uh, it was it was A.V. Constantini. Yeah, A.V. Constantini. I, I yeah. bought his books. They were $500 in about 2006 from his daughter, and they had to ship them from Germany. Uh, but yeah, uh, in fact, he's one of the people who's informed me the most in, in my exploration of, of how the body works. So it, it's it's amazing that, that you know of his work. But based on his work, if I had cancer tomorrow... I would be doing all the things we're discussing here, but I would also be doing oral amphotericin B, which is a very, very old antifungal drug, but it's one of the broadest spectrum, heaviest duty ones. Intravenously, it saves people with AIDS quite often uh, if it doesn't kill them because it's so bad. (laughs) But orally, it's relatively safe. I just don't know where I'd get it because it's hard to find. But that would be something that if you have cancer, talk to your doctors if you're listening is what I'm saying. But there is definitely amazing research on what these things could do. And whether those drugs are mitochondrial, I don't think anyone's ever looked. But maybe they are. I don't know. Yeah. And I think it's, again, it's the whole cocktail of things. It's, um, I think relying on one strategy too much is probably not wise when it comes to cancer. And also, I think constantly changing. It's such a dynamic process. Like some people, they say, oh, can you just design a ketogenic diet for me, meal plans, and then I just keep repeating them. And I was, "Mm, that's not really the way it should work. You have to adapt. You have to adapt to you, you are changing all the time. Your environment is changing all the time. So I think this is so important to just keep very flexible and adapting whatever protocols you have, especially with cancer patients. One of my favorite guests on Bulletproof Radio was uh, Glenn uh, from Alder Spring Ranch. This guy's a soil biologist turned grass-fed cattle rancher. And he describes how he has 100 square miles where he, he grazes his cattle. And he says, well, the difference in, in my cows, and his cows taste better, <laughs> is that his cows will look at the grass and they'll choose exactly the tuft of grass that's right for their body. Right? Wow. So, so they're, they're literally like, like there's a difference between what's growing here and what's growing here, even if, if they're 10 feet apart. So they're connected. They're kind of semi-wild cattle. I think we have some of the same stuff going on with us too. Like, like your body knows what it needs and, and the, the ketogenic meal plan that, that one person just thrives on might not be quite right for another person. They might still need ketosis, but maybe they needed more broccoli, right? Like, like who knows? But, but if that's yeah. what your body wants, like give it more broccoli. Broccoli is good for cancer too, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, there's no, and there's also no one way of doing the ketogenic diet. I mean, like yeah. you say, you know, some people absolutely thrive on cyclical and mm-hmm. uh, others, they're fine in, in deep ketosis. And then there's, there's people who are actually doing really well on just low carb. And they're not necessarily in ketosis or they're in, maybe in very, very um, sort of light ketosis um, after a fast a little bit or, you know. So it's, it's really, there's, there's no one size fits all, definitely, in, yeah. in the ketogenic diet. And I think we also have to be careful that we just don't constantly focus on the macros and uh, and that micronutrients are sometimes getting a little bit sort of forgotten about for some people they're just so focused on getting um the macro the 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 carbs fat and proteins right that they forget okay there's a whole range of (laughs) other foods that we should include and uh sort of make ketogenic obviously so um, that's, I think that's very important and that's what I work on a lot as well. So let's talk a little bit more about, uh, about macros. Cause I, I have a book, it's the Atkins diet, the original first edition, uh, um, of, of his book. And I have it on the shelf around here somewhere because it came out the year I was born <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I'm like, oh, it's just a reminder that, that this knowledge has been out there. I, I was yeah. covered in stretch marks. I was obese because that knowledge was completely ignored and shunned, even though literally tens of millions of people lost, I don't know, 100 million pounds on the Atkins diet. 
before I was 12, right? Like it, it, it made a difference. It was the original ketosis diet used, uh, used on a, on a very broad basis, even though we didn't know why it worked and it had mistakes in it. And you could eat, you know, cream cheese and pork rinds all day long, which I, I don't necessarily recommend. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, what are, what are the macros and what are the types of proteins maybe that, that people ought to avoid even if they're hitting their macros? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, macros, what, what we look at is, and again, this depends if somebody has to lose weight or uh, is gaining or, or has to gain weight. So that, that always um, obviously then makes a difference in terms of the, the fat intake. So if I work with somebody, it's it's obviously the, the goals determine then the macros, um, especially also when it comes to if somebody going to uh, treatment, for instance, then I have to adjust protein probably a little bit. And with carbs as well, it's, it's usually what I find is um, starting sort of reducing uh, to 12 grams over maybe two weeks or so, depending on where they start from, obviously. And then keeping it at the, the 12 grams for a little bit. So that's usually, it's around 4% of total calorie intake, sort of on a standard ketogenic diet. And then um, protein is around sort of 12 to 15%, so not very high. And again, there's there's quite a bit of research at the moment being done into um, insulinogenic um, foods and uh, protein-rich foods. So uh, that's, you know, the certain amino acids, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, are probably a little bit less preferable. But it's also interesting that there are certain foods that can, they have no carbs, but they raise insulin. And I think that's uh, what like we... Like whey protein and things like that? Or what do you yeah, think? Yeah. And also in terms of the cheeses, there seems to be a bit of a, a difference. So the, the best ones seem to actually be the soft ones. And, and then the, the very hard ones, some of them are a lot more insulinogenic. And, uh, and then also beef seems to be more insulinogenic. Turkey apparently is, is highly insulinogenic. So, is that the um, tryptophan or something? Weird. Okay. Probably, probably, yeah. yeah. And um, I don't know how many really very, very solid studies are being done into this. And again, it's probably like the, 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 glyce- the glycemic load where it's, it is individual to some yeah. extent as well, and people simply have to measure. Um, but it's it still is interesting, yeah, that there are certain certain proteins that um, obviously then, in terms of the insulin, that has an effect on on the ketone bodies as well. So if insulin um, goes up, then the ketone bodies usually are affected as well. And so this is sort of things that um, that people have to have to test and uh, I can eat certain cheeses and I see actually on the ketonics that my, my um, acetone, so what we measure in, in the breath, the ketone body, um, it, it seems to be affected, not for very long, but it's, it is interesting. I'm using the, the ketonics just to, to test certain foods sometimes. And the longer I'm in ketosis, though, the, uh, the less it seems to really be a, a problem. So... I think that also that's a very big question as well. How do we change the macro macros over time? So I'm probably back at about 50, 60 grams of carbs again. I'm not down at 12 anymore. And uh, so my macros have shifted a little bit. I also have a little bit more protein because I exercise more um, than I would have had when I was originally, when I started the ketogenic diet and I wasn't exercising and my focus was really on um, the tumor and getting it right for the tumor. So um, I think that's you know sort of the the main the main thing. And then obviously fat is I also I always say it's the buffer. So it is it is around sort of seventy five to eighty percent of total calorie intake. But um, again, if somebody is massively overweight, I you know it's it, it's interesting that it's probably not really a super high fat diet. But you have to restrict calories a little bit somehow if they want to lose weight, obviously. And uh, so not for all people, but for most. <laughs> um, so that's the, the buffer then. So the, the fat uh, intake really varies then from, from person to person. And uh, I mean, some people I know, they can eat almost endless amount of fat and their weight stays stable. Um, or it doesn't seem to make a huge difference. And others, and I think especially women, they they really have to 
if they don't want to put on weight after a while on on the ketogenic diet they sort of have to keep a bit more of a, an eye on on the fat intake which is obviously that's probably a controversial thing to say but when i sometimes see you know oh everybody has to eat more fat like in the uk you probably oh, yeah. heard it's going on yeah the, the the past few weeks and i think it's it can be also a bit of a dangerous um mess, message because people think oh i just put butter on everything but i don't change anything else about my diet you know <laughs> so, yeah so. that that, dri- that drives me nuts like if you're gonna eat you know four croissants and wash them down with bulletproof coffee uh, yes. you're, you're not doing it right. Like, like that, there are basic things you've got to do around around doing things. But that said, if you have bulletproof coffee, you probably won't want to eat four croissants. And like that, that is a profound thing in and of itself, right? Yeah, yeah. Unless you have the four croissants first, and yeah. then you're still hungry. You know, that's the problem. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is a major problem. And and I, I mean, my recommendations are really clear on that. And like, do bulletproof coffee, fat and protein in the morning. Don't eat carbs in the morning for anyone, even if you're not on on any kind of a special diet, just because it's inconvenient to be starving at 1030. And like, it, it, it simply makes the quality of your life better when you do that. And if you're going to have your carbs, uh, do them at lunch and, and more specifically towards dinner, because like they'll improve your sleep quality. And you, you do this on a regular basis without any cravings. And it, then, it, okay, maybe you're fat, maybe you're not, right? But at least you have tons of energy all the time. And like, that's a win. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think we have to be very clear with the message when sort of, I mean, we are moving with the public health collaboration now in the UK, we are moving towards, okay, something has to happen (laughs) with the food pyramid and everything. And uh, I think getting the message very clear is going to be very important uh, to make sure, you know, people benefit. Well, well, let's let's hope that this episode of Bulletproof Radio helps to make that message clearer that uh, being afraid of fat doesn't make sense. Being afraid of some fat does make sense. And you know, all proteins are not the same. And if you have cancer and you haven't thought about ketosis, uh, you probably aren't considering all your options. I, I hope those messages are really clear. Yeah, exactly. Now, I have one more question for you. And this is a question that every guest on Bulletproof Radio has answered one time or another. And it's if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do in life. This is someone without cancer necessarily, but someone says, look, I, I want to kick ass at everything I do. What are the three most important things I should know? What would you have to offer them? Um, stress levels, you know, finding way to manage stress, which is one of the things that uh, is crucial for me. I find that as well. That's point number one first. Uh, and we didn't talk about stress, but I think that's a, a huge one or managing stress. And uh, the second one, it probably would be something diet related, definitely. Um, so, yeah, starting with getting rid of junk food, depending on where they start from and definitely looking at, at diet. And uh, the third one, community. So make sure you surround yourself with people that actually um yeah that give you something and you give something back to them that it's sort of a that you have great relationships in in your life so that would be the three things Be- beautiful list uh, patricia where can people find out more about your work and specifically your book yeah my website is patriciadaily.com uh that's sort of the 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 main site that then leads on to i have a few really nice um freebies as well when it comes to the ketogenic diet so where people can actually just learn uh the basics and see okay is this something for me uh for patients and practitioners and that's on ketoforyou.com and spell that is it keto f-o-r-y-o-u.com Y-O-U.com, okay. yeah, exactly. So the link that goes from Patricia Daly uh, yeah. over there. And is Patricia Daly is P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A Daly, D-A-L-Y, right? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly. We'll, all of that will be in the show notes. It'll be uh, on the transcript of this if you want to download the transcript or whatever else. But Patricia Daly, D-A-L-Y.com. That's right, cool. yeah. And then we, we simply have uh, for our book, The Ketogenic Kitchen, I actually have it here. Um, it's theketogenickitchen.com. So, um, and it's on, it's actually, we're coming to the States in September. It's going to be published in the States with Chelsea Green. Oh, congratulations. And, uh, so, yeah, thanks. So it's going to be on Amazon.com uh, as well. At the moment, it's just in the UK and on the book depository, but, but we're coming, <laughs> coming over now, which is very exciting. Yeah. 
Well, if you're looking for some more recipes you can use that are high fat and lower in carbohydrate and delicious and full of vegetables, the kind of recipes I recommend, this is a good book to check out. So I, I look forward to uh, being able to get it in the U.S. Thanks. Yeah, great. Thanks, Patricia. <laughs> Have an awesome day. Yeah, you too. Thanks a million again for having me, Dave. Get tons more original info to make it easier to kick more asset life when you sign up with a free newsletter at bulletproofexact.com and stay bulletproof. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.